0: Thank you, Rob. I don't know why, but I really thought and really uh, just felt Rob was the guy to read the resurrection story, and it just really moved me. I was just uh, really moved by that. Thanks, and thank you, Mark, for the, the great, I think it's the first time the backpipes have ever been in here, but uh, that was wonderful. And, um, and worship team, of course, every Sunday, you lead us to the throne, and I uh, thank you for that. Let's pray together this morning. <clears throat> Father, we, recho- we choose to rejoice in your power today. And we join in the ancient praise of the psalmist who claims that, uh, that people from one end of the earth to the other will remember and turn to the Lord, and the people of all nations will bow down before him. For the Lord is king and he rules over the nations. All the rich people of the earth will worship God and take part in His feast, And all those who go down to the edge of the grave will fall on their knees in front of Him. And I'm talking about those who hardly keep themselves alive. Those who are not born will serve Him. And those who are born later will be told about the Lord. And they will tell people who have not been born that what He has done is good and righteous. Father, we crave Your blessing on us this day of celebration. But we also crave rest that comes in in the peace of your resurrection. We rejoice today in the worship and the gladness of the risen Savior. Father, we ask that you refresh our spirit today as you refresh our bodies, that you give us grace to reflect and bring together all those scattered forces that are around us that seem to make our mind jump from one place to the next. We ask that you help center them so that we focus on you. Father, I ask that we we are able to to step aside just for a little while and take in what this means for us, what it means to follow you, that may the living Jesus be our companion today in our thoughts and in our singing, in our prayers, in our families, in our Easter egg hunts, in our, our dinners with families, our naps, whatever it is, we ask that you be with us today, Father, in a very special way that will carry us into the week. We ask that his life, that is alive today, take root in our souls. May he be in us and us in them. Father, we recognize that you are the ground of truth, of all truth, the light of light, who opens hearts to love and opens minds to clarity, to discern your will. We ask that you give us wisdom to abstain from things that do damage and discipline to pursue the things that do good. Father, we pray today that, that all human hearts open themselves up to you as billions around the world meet together to praise and magnify your name on this day. And we declare that you are the God who raises the dead. We, ex- we ask that you accept our worship this morning, regardless of where it happens and what the style it is, that you accept our worship today. And we praise you for our life and for all eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, last uh, week or so, Sue and I watched the first part of uh, Ken Burns' new documentary on Benjamin Franklin, and uh, really a fascinating character, amazing, amazing figure in our history, amazing, amazing person. He was uh, an, in, an inventor, a scientist, a publisher, a printer. Uh, he, um, he had several patents. He was a philosopher. He was a diplomat, a uh, pretty incredible person. Uh, he didn't... Patent anything, any of his ideas. He didn't, uh, he didn't patent anything because he thought he felt like good ideas are for all the human race. That if you invented something good, it ought to be used by everybody and not just uh, him cornering the market on something. So he never patented any of his inventions. Uh, he's particularly famous for electricity, of course. A lot of people, a lot of us know that, that he's famous for his work in electricity. He's the one who, who discerned that, it was, uh, that electricity flowed from positive to negative. And, of course, we all know his experiment with the kite and the key and all that. Well, he also invented the, the lightning rod uh, in order to protect buildings from getting struck by lightning and damaged by lightning. And uh, he insisted, you know, that, that all the buildings in the towns put that up and put lightning rods in their, in their buildings. But he wrote, but he met a lot of opposition to that, a lot of pushback. A lot of people did not want to put lightning rods in their houses and in their buildings and in their churches. And you know where that opposition came from? The church. Christians. Uh, the Puritan Christians of, the, of, the, of the, the colonies, the New England colonies, uh, they thought that lightning was God's preferred form of judgment. That uh, they used lightning to punish and to judge. And if uh, lightning struck a house, it was because there was skin and sin in that house. And if uh, lightning struck a town, it was because there was sin in the town. And strangely enough, ironically enough, the buildings that got struck the most by lightning were churches. And the reason for that is because they were the highest building in town. But, you know, they didn't make that connection. But if a lightning struck a church, there must be sin in the congregation. Now, I don't know why anyone would invent a God like that, to be honest. I can't figure that out. Why anyone would invent a God that would behave in that way? And some people would say, well, we didn't invent God that way. That's just the way he is. That's just way, that's how he operates. Or if you're, you know, kind of in line with maybe some of the critics, you say, well, people do that all the time. We invent stuff all the time in order to control people. And so we invent this God or any other rule or any other kind of threat or punishment in order that we can control people. And I, I just happened to see this week uh, on one of those, you know, crazy little Instagram things and that uh, they were putting this mom put what her son had written from school evidently the teacher had asked the students to write a list of the worst things that human beings can do and it must be a pretty strict school and uh, maybe add in a few threats in that school because the son wrote number one the worst thing that a human can do number one is murder and number two is run in the halls So, (laughs) so running in the halls is right next to murder right there and we know that, we know we'd like to create these things and, and, and form these things just like, so that we can control people, but that's a lie. That picture of God is a lie. And the resurrection proves that it's a lie. It shows us that it is a lie. We see that in Matthew chapter 28 that Rob just read. And it's easy to divide that chapter really in in three easy sections, and that's what we're going to do. And I really believe that the whole chapter needs to go together. We kind of dissect that chapter a lot, Uh, but I think the whole chapter needs to go together. You have this first, this this grand surprise of God, this, this surprising event, but it comes with this surprising command. And then the next paragraph, we have this sort of a sudden crisis that is dealt with. And then the last section is this supreme calling. How's that for preaching alliteration? Uh, we have this surprising command we have a sudden crisis and we have a supreme calling and these three things I think really need to go together and we have this first, first section where they have the resurrection story and we have this surprising command and I know I've, I've mentioned this before in, in the church and in, in other sermons but do you know, you know what is the most common, common command in the scripture the command that is repeated most in scripture don't be afraid Fear not. That is the most common command in the Scripture. It's not be holy. It's not be good. It's not don't sin. It's not don't be immoral. It's don't be afraid. And that's how, he, that's how it happens here in the resurrection, and it's repeated twice. Once by an angel who's sitting on the stone of the, the cover of the tomb, and then once by Jesus himself. He's telling the women to don't be afraid. Now, That is the most frequent command, and it's the one that we really need to hear and want to hear because it feels good. It gets good for us, you know, but at the same time, it's probably one of the hardest to obey. Okay, we don't fear. Well, how am I supposed to do that? How does that work? Because we seem to almost thrive on fear. We almost eat, breathe, and sleep fear. It's like it's everywhere. And and it kind of It it just saturates our subconscious. I have this this fear of of final exams, believe it or not. And I had my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Ferguson, had a conference with my parents because she was concerned about my mental health. Because I would get so worked up when it came to final exams. And it was also true in baseball. Whenever we would start training and practicing for baseball season, the coach always put me in the batting order of one, two, or three. I never batted cleanup, but I batted in the top of the batting order. You come to the end of the season and I'm down at eight and nine. <laughs> I, I would just freak out. I would get so nervous. And I had this, I literally have this reoccurring dream that it's, it, it hadn't happened often often, but enough in my life that it's I would call it a reoccurring dream, where I have signed up for some class, usually a math class or calculus or something like that, and exam time comes along. And I forgot to attend all semester. I just <laughs> forgot. And that's, a, that's my nightmare. So it's fearful. We just kind of live with it. We live with this, this kind of fear. and But we want to. We want to have that voice in our head to say, don't be afraid. Everything's going to be all right. We want to hear that. But the irony is we, we can't do it. Even the silly stuff. But we're, it's almost like we're born afraid. We're afraid... When we grow up, we're afraid of being uh, unloved or abandoned or um, just just left alone. And then, as we get older, we're afraid about mixing with other kids, and then other adolescents, and then other young adults. We're afraid we're going to do something stupid, or we're going to or we're going to say something stupid. Uh, we're we're afraid that we're we're somehow behind in this race that everybody else seems to know about except me. Uh, you know, the 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 young. The millennials, they even have an acronym for that, that FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out, and we're, you get afraid of that. We're afraid of, of um, you know, we're contemplating the job, and we're afraid to get the job, or we're afraid we'll not get the job, or we're contemplating marriage and think, I'm afraid, is this the right person, and if it is the right person, is it going to, we're afraid it's going to end in disaster, or we want to do a career change, and we think, okay, I want to get out of this, I'm afraid to, I'm afraid to leave the stability, but at the same time, I don't want to miss a golden opportunity, and And these are all the good stuff. These are all the kind of the big decisions, but there's also deep-seated fears of disaster and crisis. But then there's the stuff like final exams that just kind of stick in our heads for some reason. And we just kind of live with this fear. And I would love to imagine a time where we didn't have to live with this fear, that somehow that command we could obey, that we could hear that voice that says, don't be afraid, it's going to be all Right? It's going to be okay. One of Sue and I's favorite movies, From we like black and white old movies, and one of our favorites is Harvey with uh, Jimmy Stewart. And Jimmy Stewart plays Elwood P. Dowell who sees a seven-foot rabbit, right? And everybody thinks he's crazy. And there's one scene, my favorite scene, where he's in the office of Dr. Chumley, the psychiatrist, and they're talking, and Elwood P. Dowell is this really inviting, warm kind of person, and pretty soon the roles reverse, and it's Dr. Chumley's on the couch, and Elwood P. Dowd is sitting in the chair. And they talk about stopping time and what we would do, and Chumley's laying there going, if I could stop time, I'd go to Akron, Ohio. And he says, I, and, and I, would, I would order out cold beer. And there would be a beautiful woman there, just quiet. And all she would be doing is she'd hold my hand and go, poor, poor thing, <laughs> poor, poor thing. And I feel like that's kind of the way we live. Sue and I kind of, that's our kind of line, you know, when you get kind of depressed, we just, I just need somebody to say poor, poor thing. (laughs) And we need that. We need that voice that says, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I can't imagine uh, living without fear. But God tells us to not be afraid. We tend to project that fear on God. And with that fear comes its cousin, hatred. And so we end up having a God that we fear and maybe secretly hate, maybe secretly resent. But really all it is is a mirror of ourselves that we put on Him. Well, Matthew ends his book here. And there's two messengers here in this story. There's There's one group of messengers that... Are afraid and they run away. And then there's another group of messengers that stay around. One group of messengers thinks it's a crisis and they are the guards. The ones that live in panic, they're the ones with the swords, the armed ones. And the ones who are not are the women carrying spices to anoint a body. And it's these messengers that panic, and it's the women who don't. And then it ends with two assemblies, two groups, two, two bands, two, uh, two groups of people meeting together. And that's why I think these things need to come together. They're all tied to the resurrection. And then you have one group that meets in fear and panic, and then one group that meets in calm and peace and confidence. And I think we're supposed to see these two things as, as, as playing off of each other, one One functions, one reacts out of fear and panic, and the other one reacts with faith and trust and love. You have the armed guards, guards carrying swords, and you have the women carrying spices. And the angel says, don't be afraid. And you say, well, that's probably a good idea because the angel said, when you see an angel, you're going to be shocked, you're going to be afraid, and you've just had an earthquake, and uh, fair enough. But when Jesus tells them, they're holding on to him. And they're worshiping him. They're not in panic. And Jesus tells them, don't be afraid. One messenger worships, the other messengers panic. And then you get into these two assemblies and they go back and they report to the priest everything they saw, the Bible says. One group is in in panic mode and the other one is in faith mode, is in trust mode. One responds in fear, and the other responds in worship. And I think these two things play off of each other. They get the same news. The the guards report to the priest. The Bible says everything that happened. The priest and the disciples are getting the same news. So the problem is not the news. The problem is not the information. The problem is fear. The priests are living in fear afraid. And I think when we look at this, we say that the guards, they were afraid, they were afraid for their lives because if the body was gone and stolen or disappeared, their lives, are, their lives are at stake because they slept at their post or they abandoned their post. But the priests are afraid of other things. They're afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people when Jesus was ministering, that, they would, that all the people were going to follow Him and not them, and not the, not the temple. They would abandon the temple. They were afraid of losing control. The priests had control of the people. They had control, they had the authority, and they were afraid of losing control. They were afraid of losing their privilege and their power. They had lots of power, lots of authority, but there were people who were authority over them, the governors. And then there was, a, there was the emperor over them, and they all used threats and they were afraid of losing control, that this Jesus would take people away and they would lose their privilege, they would lose their place in, in, in the empire, they would lose their power. But I also think, you know what, I think that they were also, in good faith, afraid for God. They were afraid of, of losing the traditions. I, I kind of believe that there were some of them who actually felt like this is wrong. We have to preserve the faithful Jewish tradition. We have to defend God against this man because he's going against what we've always believed and what we've always practiced. And the only reason I believe that is because I've also read the book of Acts. And you have a a, a Pharisee priest, uh, Gamaliel, who was very faithful, who was really concerned about, about Judaism, about true worship. You have Paul, before he had met Jesus on Damascus, I feel like Paul was very sincere. He felt like he was protecting the tradition, he was protecting, he was protecting God in a way. And so I think this is a good lesson for us, because if we find ourselves in the position of having to feel like we have to defend God, then chances are you're worshiping an idol. If you find yourself in a position that you have to protect God from, from, from being attacked, chances are you're not worshiping the true God. If you feel like you've got to protect Christianity and, and, in a way and, and fight for Christianity, then chances are Chances are, you're worshiping an idol. Amen. Chances are this is not who, you, who we worship. You are worshiping in fear of something else. You're worshiping in fear of, of things collapsing around you, of things changing around you. God does not need our defense. Amen. And we'll get to that in a moment. He does not need our defense. But th- see, this is the tragedy of fear because the tragedy of fear blocks us from hearing what God has to say. Fear keeps us, more than anything else, keeps us from seeing what God is doing and what He has to say. That, that men, these priests, were serving God, supposedly. They were, they were to be the examples of Jerusalem. And yet fear easily disguises itself as greed or pride or hate or isolation. All kinds of things. But I'm convinced that these priests were operating out of fear. And fear, more than anything else, blocks us from hearing what God has to say. And seeing what God is doing. Their their position they felt was so tenuous that they had to resort to lies and manipulation and bribery, even orchestrating the execution of the Messiah. That's what fear does to you. And you'll hear people say, I had no choice. You always have a choice. We always have a choice. But fear will do that to you. That's the tragedy of fear. It blocks what we're hearing from God. We cannot see what God is doing. So one group is in panic. But then the next group worships. Those messengers came to the disciples and they worship. And here's the, the, here, this is what we call the Great Commission. And every missionary, we've all preached sermons on the Great Commission. I mean, we live by the Great Commission. But my problem is that we have, we have separated the Great Commission away from the resurrection story. Those two things go together. You cannot have a Great Commission unless you have a resurrection. And the resurrection is what prompts the Great Commission. But we have this, this Great Commission, and it is in all the Gospels, including Acts, but Matthew does a masterful job of tying it to the resurrection. Those things are so important. And we see this wonderful contrast here. And I think this is what Matthew is getting at. You see the contrast of of fear versus love and trust. And fear, fear hates changes. Resurrection is about the new creation. It's about being a new creation. This is new life. This is where death is defeated. And creation is started and creation is launched. The new creation is launched. The first day of the week. The new creation is launched. We are new creatures in Christ. One operates in fear that hates changes, and the other, the resurrection, is all about change. It's all about transformation. And I know, I know conservatives, we're, supposed to be, we're not supposed to be skeptical of change. But guess what? The gospel is all about change. It's all about transformation. This is a new thing that God is doing. This is a new creation that transforms us. This, but fear hates change. Fear seeks to control. Fear seeks to control, but resurrection is seeking participation. And freedom. That's right. He is seeking us to, to participate in what God is doing. That we are participating in what he is doing in life, in his life now, into all eternity. Where fear seeks to control. Fear seeks to threaten. And they control by threatening, but resurrection seeks to love and trust. Jesus knew, and the disciples knew, they knew what Rome was all about. They knew Rome as, an, as a temporary empire. They know that, that Rome has authority, but it's temporary. What does Jesus say in this section? He says, Yeah, there's authority out there. Those priests have authority, the governors have authority, the emperor has authority. But Jesus, after the resurrection, all authority has been given to him on heaven and earth. The ultimate authority, the authority for all eternity. The disciples saw that. Fear threatens, but resurrection trusts and love, not demands and threatens. Fear isolates and alienates. Resurrection creates a new family. Fear wants to isolate everybody, and, and the, Jews were, the the Jewish leaders were, were masters at separating Jews from Gentiles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But this is a new family. Fear alienates. Fear is the other. But resurrection creates a new humanity. He says, I will make disciples of all nations, all peoples. Like Moses was on the mountain and looked at the promised land and said, go and conquer the promised land. Well, Jesus is on the mountain with his disciples and he's looking at the promised land, but now the promised land includes the entire earth, the entire world. And he says, go and make disciples. Make learners, co-learners. That's what a disciple is. It's an apprentice. Just go and make learners, people who will follow me. Fear defends God tries to defend a way of life, tries to defend a tradition, but the resurrection is come and see. When the angel appeared to the, to the women and the men and the guards were running away and the guards were taken off and they go into the priest, and they were in panic mode, the women stayed there and the, and the angel said what? Come and see. Come and look. We don't need to defend the story of Jesus. We just need to tell the story of Jesus. We just need to tell it. The resurrection is not a doctrine that just a bunch of facts that we believe, although those facts are important, but it's more than a doctrine. It is an ongoing life with Jesus. That's the resurrection. When the church gathers, we receive gifts from each other. We receive the gift from the Holy Spirit. We receive the praise. And we, as we praise God, we receive the, the, the invigoration we have together. And then when we're scattered, we are become the givers. And we go out to give those gifts. We just tell the story. We don't arm twist. We don't threaten. That's what resurrection is. We just... Tell the story, the story of the resurrection. Resurrection, yes, threatens power. And it's, it's very instinctive. It's very like a knee-jerk reaction. When, when we preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ, yes, it will threaten power. And power will come some pushback and will try to intimidate us. So, But the temptation, the worst thing we can do then is to operate in fear because that will sabotage our ministry. That will sabotage the message of Jesus Christ. We cannot operate in fear. If we operate in fear, we start doing sleazy things. We start doing the things that the world does that we shouldn't be doing. And it ends up sabotaging our ministry. That's what fear does. Fear causes us to, to... do things that are sleazy because the end justifies the means. So we start covering things up because to protect the reputation of the church. That's operating out of fear. We don't operate out of fear. We operate out of trust and love. Now, I don't want to, we're going to finish here in a minute. I don't want to give the impression that this is easy, that with a snap of a finger, I'll stop being afraid. I will get confident. And, and, I, and yeah, you know, usually when you run across people who are really overly confident, it's, it's just a cover-up. You know, I mean, they're, they're just as afraid as we are. But I don't want to give the impression that it's easy. And it's just that we can, have, we can do it at the snaps of a finger. And as I want to bring in one other person in here, and that's Paul. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul is telling the 2 Corinthians about a situation in his life. I probably should just go ahead and read it. In chapter 1, he says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia, which is now today's Turkey. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even to life. Even into our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happens that we may not rely on ourselves, but... We rely on the God who raises the dead. If you look at that a little bit careful, the Corinthians, they want to hear the success story. Paul's a successful guy. I'm a successful missionary. We want to hear the the good stuff. We want to hear all the successful story. And Paul instead goes to him and says, I'm at a point where I don't care if I live anymore. I'm ready to die. I have received a death sentence. This This is the language of depression. And Paul is in deep depression. We don't know why. We don't know if it was because of persecution. He was threatened with jail. We don't know if he he failed in Ephesus. He doesn't know. He's like, oh, I have blown it so badly. I have really messed up. But he is depressed at the point of death. And he says, I can't rely on myself anymore. I have to rely on the God who raises the dead. And I say that because we all have these little fears in our heads, these little fears in the recesses of our hearts that tend to come out. And sometimes we don't even know it until a crisis confronts us. And it's a fear, and, and we're confronted with an illness. We're confronted with the loss of someone we love. We're confronted with a, a financial instability. We're confronted with all kinds of things, and, and, and that that those fears come out and start to control us and we start trying to manipulate and bribe and do whatever it takes to get out of this fear. And Paul says, I'm I'm not going to rely on me. I'm going to rely on the God who raises the dead. And I think when those fears come back, those fears of, 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 of illness, the fear of death, the fear of losing someone, the fear of catastrophe or disaster, those fears start popping up. We have to tell ourselves, I'm going to rely on the God who raises the dead. I choose to rely on the God who raises the dead, even in the depths of depression. Matthew begins his gospel with two men. One man with a lot of power and one man with no power. He begins his gospel with one man who lives in fear and one man who lives in faith. Herod and Joseph. Herod is so fearful, he kills children. Joseph is so fearful, he protects his firstborn. One has the power, one does not. Matthew finishes his book with two groups of men. One who lives in power, and one who lives in fear, and one group who lives in faith and trust and love. One group has all the power, one group has none of the power. Matthew also starts his book with a command do not fear. And Matthew ends his book with the command do not fear. I hope, I hope that this is clear now that God, the God who raises the dead, is not the God of that man made monster who likes to sit in the clouds and throw lightning bolts, whether they're metaphorical or whether they're real. He is the God who raises the dead. Amen. That we leave behind that God, which is really an idol. That we leave behind the God who, who wants to keep knocking us down or he keeps wanting to control us or he keeps wanting to squash our individual, to squash our personality. He doesn't want to do that. We follow and trust and love And we have to leave the threats and the fear behind. That the true God gives life. He is life. And he says, do not be afraid. He gives life that is deeper, that is richer, that is more mature, that is genuinely human. That's what he wants for us. So to wrap all this up, all of that to say this one thing. And that is, we can obey out of rules and threats, but we can't follow Jesus out of rules and threats. We follow Jesus because we trust him. We follow Jesus because we love him. Following Jesus is through that, through faith, not through rules. You cannot follow Jesus in fear and threats of rules. We follow him out of love and faith and trust. That's what it is. Faith, I'm sorry, fear is the one thing that keeps us from hearing what God has to say. Fear is the one thing that keeps us from seeing what Jesus has done. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up, you guys. Father, we thank you for the trust we have in you. We thank you for the eternal life that you give. That if we trust you, that if we trust you, that you are the God who raises the dead. We thank you for that. We thank you for the confidence that you've given us. And Father, forgive us when we can't seem to shake the fear. And teach us to do what Paul did, and that is rely on the God who raises the dead. And it's in the living Savior's name we pray. Amen.